if you were an item on the menu at a coffee shop, what would you be and why? Um, <clears throat> I would probably be something salted caramel. Ah. Like, what is that? Like a macchiato or something salty. Okay. Like, I would want that. something, like, I want my coffee, like, sweet and to taste of tears. Like, <laughs> that combination, just that magic combination. I feel like we could have a whole podcast around the wire for that. <laughs> I'm, 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 here. Magic. I'm here for it. <laughs> Four wing in action. Yeah. All right. Kimberly, what about you? Uh, well, I thought about this and I thought I would be a latte but i really like lattes with latte art it's my secret dream to work for no other reason for a coffee shop than just to learn latte art and one of the hardest things to do is a swan so i'd be like a swan latte art and i think the reason is because you will generally experience me trying a little too hard but being kind of fun while i'm at it <laughs> how about you right on, right on. So I want to go with the classic cafe au lait. Really? Yeah. Okay. You know, half, you know, half steamy sweet milk, half deep dark espresso. Ooh. And then you put you put the two together, you know, and then you get me. <laughs> you know, both Plus, fun and deep. Maybe. I like that. Plus, it's got some <laughs> yeah. New Orleans roots for you. And it's got some New Orleans roots. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So cafe du monde, my happy place. So. <laughs> And to our listeners, welcome to the Kimberly Coach Show, where we bring you actionable practices you can use in your leadership and collaboration today. I'm Coach Kimberly, is right next to me. With us today is Jenna St. David, author Woo! of The Brain and the Spirits. Oh, we got it right here. Hold up, hold up. So for our, our video audience, Associate Professor of Counselor Education at Seminary of the Southwest and Therapist Stone Springs Wellness. Jenna, thanks for months, so much for hanging out for, with us today. Oh, I'm, I've been so looking forward to this. I enjoy you both so much. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I, I like the way you just described this show. I like the actionable part <laughs> that really like it both uh, resonates with how I know the two of you. And I appreciate that you make it so practical for listeners. And um, yeah, that really appeals to me. Wow. I'm a doer. I like I like doing things. My my uh, relationship with my emotional self has had to blossom as an adult, but action <laughs> is my first love. That's my first love. Right on, right on. I love Our it. dream for this podcast is really that someone could theoretically listen to it on the way to work or on the way to a meeting, and then have something they could bring into that meeting that they could put into play. You know, maybe not every episode, but like some of the episodes would be like, "That's exactly what I needed for this." And so we really want people to have things they can take right into their life. Yep. Yep. Cause you know, you can learn all the theory you want, but if you can't make it happen, yeah. who cares? <laughs> so. We like things that move the needle yeah. and things that move us towards a better story, a better reality. So if we get to play a little part in that, that's just a lot mm -hmm. of joy. So Jenna, tell us of speaking of action, tell us about your journey, uh, studying neurobiology and psychology. This is an intriguing combination. Yeah. Um, 
Gosh, it's just definitely become a passion of mine. When I first entered the field of psychology about 20 years ago, uh, brain science, brain imagery was just beginning to revolutionize the way that we thought about how to help human beings grow, change, and learn. And uh, prior to that, Bessel van der Kolk is one of my uh, go-to neuroscience authors, and he uses the metaphor of like a car engine. So before we had the recent uh, brain imagery, it was we could study like the gasoline in the car, but now we can really look at the three-dimensional engine and understand ah, how okay. it wired. And so the the impact that that has had on the field of psychology and how we think about how to help human beings achieve their goals is just, it defies words. It's like a level of paradigm shift. And um, before brain imagery, we were like, it was like throwing spaghetti at the wall, like the things that we would give people to try or to try to help them change. And some of it would work, but we wouldn't know why it worked when it did. So we would yeah. just throw more of it. And then when it didn't work, sadly, we would often blame the wall as if there's something <laughs> wrong with the person. It's and not so, sticky enough. <laughs> <laughs> why do you not want this spaghetti I'm throwing at you? Um, so uh, it is just really, and it's just going to continue to expand our understanding and our ability to help the people we work with make the strategic changes that they're wanting to make in their life and, and do that quicker and honestly gentler. And um, <laughs> so that has really, um, yeah, that's just been really appealing and attractive to me. Now you have written a book, The Brain and the Spirit, um, that weaves together some of this neurobiological and sociological research with matters of faith and theology. And in that book, there's a chapter called A Cup of Stress, A Cup of Safety. And as I was reading your book, which I love also for the theological implications of it, but in this podcast where I'm really interested in this piece about how the brain learns, and I see a lot of business-facing application for that. And the chapter focuses on how we learn and develop and the parts that um, stress and safety play in how we develop. And so as we're thinking about this in a business facing kind of way, we are often as leaders, as managers, as trainers, looking to help people develop into new processes, into better character, into um, from, you know, a rank and file person into leadership. And so as we are developing people, these things would still have a huge impact. And so I would love to hear you talk a little bit about how the brain learns, a la what you talk about in that chapter of your book. Yeah, well, that's an area that we have learned a lot about in my field in recent decades. And um, I've, my field has thought about stress in lots of different ways. There's mm -hmm. been seasons where we have thought about it as something to really be eliminated. Uh, that it's harmful right. and there is a relationship between stress and disease and stress and health and wellness. Um, but what we have come to really appreciate is that our bodies are designed, wired to um, handle stress really well, actually. We're very resilient as human beings and we need a little bit of stress in order to function optimally and stress plays an important role in learning. So um, 
so in the business world or in human development, when we're thinking about developing leaders or um, supporting teams to be as successful as possible, thinking about finding that Goldilocks, like that just right level of stress, um, can it can be a helpful um, lens for a leader to be looking through and to assess for, you know, each person that we're working with has a different level of tolerance. So the same stressors will feel differently to different individuals, which yeah. makes the matter more complicated. For sure. Um, <laughs> but if we just are really pragmatic about the way that the brain learns, what we need to understand is that uh, stress is really what catalyzes the neurons to stretch and wire differently. And that's really when we're talking about helping people grow, change, or learn. That's what we're talking about is changes in the actual gray matter of the brain. It's the neural pathways that are linking up in certain ways that produce, uh, well, they're informed by memories and past experiences. They produce the emotional, the sensation, the felt sense of our response to a stimulus. Then we have a thought about it. Okay. Like, then we make up a story about it uh -huh. and then we decide what to do. The only difference in what I just said is if if the stimulus is so threatening to us, then it will activate our brainstem and we'll go down into more of our automatic responses and it'll bypass yeah. even the thought or the story. We'll have an emotion, react, and then we'll process it afterwards. So, so you're not learning as much. We're not learning. Yeah, learning really shuts down. So if we're feeling <clears throat> too threatened and we're really down in our brainstem, then those upper parts of our brain that would allow us to think about how we want to respond, those really go dark. They really are not, we're not able to access them when our stress is too high. So, but optimally, our, our stress would be just in that Goldilocks zone, and that's what will allow us to feel safe enough to have access to all the higher parts of our brain, even if we're feeling threatened. And then the stress is what will prompt the neurons to wire in a different pattern. And ideally, um, that's what we're trying to, those are the conditions we're trying to create as leaders when we're trying to help people grow, change, and learn. So um, paying attention to that is a really helpful tool, uh, but it does get complicated because each person, um, that, that optimal stress point is gonna be different for each individual. Can you speak a little bit to then how safety interacts with that optimal stress point? Yeah. So imagine that we're working in an environment that is high stress, which most of us are. Um, the stress <laughs> often is the stress, the stress in most of our work environments is, has less to do with the tasks that we're given and more to do with the people we're given to work with. But uh, regardless, very true. <laughs> when we're in high stress work environments, there's really two ways to balance out a stress overload. And one is to decrease the, the stress. And another is to increase the safety so that it can balance that out. But there's also a third component, which uh, ha is more of an internal resource. So trust is we can think of trust as this neurobiological phenomenon that happens automatically when we encounter a trustworthy person or, or we can perceive a trustworthy situation. And then our brain will release these neuro, 
neurotransmitters, uh, oxytocin and uh, some serotonin, and these these chemicals they're just soothe and calm. They're good. They flood us with really warm, positive feelings, mm-hmm. and it helps regulate our our stress, our nervous system. So we can think about trust as like the thermostat for our nervous system. It regulates our stress mm. and it then it allows us to have access to those higher parts of our brain, even in the face of a true threat, even when mm-hmm. the stress mm-hmm. remains high. So that can be, a, so things that we can do to increase the trust in the environment can offset things that we have no control over. Like we might not be able to eliminate stress or increase safety, but we can always do something about trust. Right, yeah. Oh. Okay, so talking about this, how does this research affect the way that we look at, say, like disciplinary action? Because this is what, as we as we are talking about this and thinking about this, how how can this, how does this affect when team when te- when issues come up with team members? How can bosses and HR staff how can they anchor improvement in a way that makes things better? versus blowing stuff up even more with this whole trust and stress equation. Is there, is there something that, cause I, you know, having been on both sides of this table <laughs> on this kind of scenario, uh, cause I mean, obviously have you met me, but um, you know, when I've been reprimanded or whatnot, you know what, I have a tendency to be like, yeah, I'm flipping the table and um, you know, now everything's worse. <laughs> so <laughs> And and I've had the same thing happen as as a manager too. How can how can we think about that without you know forcing our employees to you know to to move into that overstressed space? Then yeah, it's such an important question because um, our 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 emotions and our body sensations can either work with us or against us. That's what I hear you saying. That's what I hear you recognizing. And so how can we how can we mobilize our nervous system and other people's to work for us to help achieve the goal, I think is a helpful way to frame it. And so um, whenever somebody, particularly someone in a power down position um, it, with us, like an employee, a supervisee, a student, mm-hmm. Um, when that person's nervous system perceives us to be the threat, then that's when trust will be eroded. And we, we will suddenly cease to be a potential tool to help regulate their nervous system so that they can um, learn better. Mm-hmm. But uh, if trust is, exists between us, then our nervous system can help them regulate. And so that's Number one, maybe something for us to think about is how to regulate ourselves enough so that we are not mirroring that person who is feeling threatened. We're inviting them to mirror us. And that kind of resonance happens in all sorts of nonverbal ways. So if we're sitting with someone who maybe there's a remediation plan or a discipline action or maybe they've done something that really has jeopardized like their job or their livelihood. So there's a true threat on the table, right? but sure. I want the threat to be that thing, not me. And so the number one, I have to go in 
conveying non-verbally that I'm not threatened and I'm not a threat. And that has to do more with like softening my face and mm-hmm. eye contact and particularly right brain to right brain resonance that happens when my left eye is making contact with your left eye because the brain is crosswired and then regulating wow. my breath and having an open posture, softening my voice. All of those things can communicate to you. What it, Basically, I'm communicating to your reptilian brain that I'm not about to eat you. <laughs> Sounds like a plus. <laughs> so we're clear about this. In this meeting you will not be cannibalized. Okay. All right. I'm here for well, this. Well, and so I do far. think, is, I mean, it's a, it's a funny statement, but I do think you go into that meeting. If you're going to something knowing you're in trouble, you've made a big mistake. You don't know how much they're about to, you know, metaphorically eat you. Are you about to be attacked? Are you about to be fired? Are you about to lose something that's really important to you? Is this person going to help you fix it? Or are they going to throw you under the bus? You really are kind of wondering what, I think I've what had role. All those things happen to me too, by the way. Same. So, you know, I think we've all had all those things happen to us. That's part of why we're so reactive in yeah. that kind of space is that we already have some of these stories, mm-hmm. even from well, like siblings yeah. and parents. <laughs> and I think you're saying something important that's worth just underscoring that there's a lot of misconceptions out there. And we in our field of psychology and parenting training, we used to think that it was very helpful or necessary even to activate someone's nervous system to the point of threat mode in order to get the message across like we thought that pain is actually going to be a teacher it's going to teach them a lesson and what we now understand is it does the opposite Mm. and you talk a little bit more about that why does it do the opposite yeah so for instance take the the scenario that ben raised where we're working with an employee that really needs to remediate something or, or maybe they even are facing termination and we're the ones having that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. There, there used to be a prevailing thought that we, if we want to help that person either remediate or we want to send them off with the lesson like, this is what you did wrong, so in your next position, don't do this again, or this is entirely your fault, so don't blame me for the fact that you're losing your job now, whatever. Whatever the lesson is we're trying to get across, we used to think that we needed to make the person feel bad in order to for them to internalize the lesson, mm-hmm. essentially. We used mm-hmm. to think that the pain of them feeling threat, them feeling like they were about to be eaten, is going to be the teacher. But we just now understand that it's the opposite, that uh, we have that that threshold. And when it mm-hmm. flips down into threat mode, then no new learning is happening, like you said earlier, Kimberly. And then actually they're they're misperceiving me as the threat when right. I'm not the threat. Mm-hmm. And so helping them, it's very useful if we can externalize the threat to um, the standard, the rule that was broken the performance that wasn't met, whatever it is. And then if I'm in a position to be an ally, like you said, like I'm here to help you understand the standard and meet it. Right. And okay. I, then I then I can go in just as a total ally, like totally on your side, totally in your corner. And that can be really helpful. But if someone's actually about to be terminated, then going in really with a lot of empathy for the, the real threats, but how can I help you feel hopeful about your ability to meet those next time or 
you know, and sometimes that's not possible, but when, but that's a really helpful goal for us to go in with into mm-hmm. those conversations with yeah. that posture. Yeah, I love that. That's so good. That's so love, good. <laughs> I would love to swing the pendulum to the other side and talk about if you are in a leadership position and someone's doing really well. So they're not, they're not coming into a meeting, they're, they're not in trouble. You're impressed with them, but you want to invest in them in such a way that they're moving up into a new role or a new capacity or a new level of character. And, and so we're not managing the stress as much as how do we get them to a place of challenge where they don't in their current space necessarily need or feel like anything needs to change. You know, I had this picture when you were talking earlier of of like how you learn to swim. So like if you get thrown in and you're drowning, you probably don't need someone instructing you from the side. Here's how you swim because you're not learning. Right. But if there's no pool and there's no ocean, you're in a landlocked space and we're like, you really need to learn to swim. You might need it someday. Then there's not enough challenge. That's the image that was coming to my mind. And I think as we are investing and doing leadership and personal development, we are sometimes asking someone to come in and ready for something that they don't, they're not experiencing yet. They're not feeling the challenge or the need for it just yet. And so how would you approach that? Yeah, I think you're asking, Kimberly, you're asking a question that's very neuroscientifically <laughs> insightful because you're you're inviting us to notice that um we also don't function well when stress is too low right we tend to stagnate we and um we're just bored we're disinterested and no new learning is happening under that condition either and so um for a a leader to figure out ways to introduce more stress the right kinds of stress can be really important. And I'll share an example, a really quick story that may not on the surface be clear how it connects, but okay. but it I'm ready. will bring it back around. But we're um, in for the ride. I am I'm practicing a particular type of public speaking that uh, in my work environment I have opportunities to practice. And um I'm very fortunate that my relationship with my two bosses, there's high high trust to balance out any stress. Okay. And one of the factors, I've really been thinking about what our work community has done to create such a trustworthy environment. And one of the messages that's communicated in lots of ways is that failure is not fatal. Like it's, uh, love it's it. okay yeah. to make mistakes, non-fatal mistakes, um, but uh, that requires um, some really intentional communication because what makes a lot of mistakes feel more fatal or, you know, the consequences are higher is, is when those mistakes catch people off by surprise, off mm-hmm. guard, or when someone was taking a risk that um, other people weren't aware of. And so there wasn't enough information on the front end or enough support debriefing on the back end. And so taking risks in a vacuum uh, can contribute to mis- So anyway, all of us to say, mm-hmm. so we do, we yeah. do we communicate a lot. So I was going into this particular public speaking moment and I was um, practicing a skill in that, in that uh, event that I was not sure of. I, and so I went to my boss ahead of time and I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. It could be a mistake. <laughs> And I still want to do it. 
will you support me? And if it goes really badly, can I have your reassurance? And we'll just talk about it afterwards and you'll help me learn from it. And I know my boss well enough now to know that that was a conversation I could have with him. And if he said, right. no, actually, I think this is a really bad idea. I think you're wrong. <laughs> I would hear it and I was willing to pivot. Um, but he listened to me, he asked me some questions. He said, no, I think do it. And if it goes badly, yes, we'll just talk about it. So he was helping me recognize the stakes are not so high mm-hmm. that we can't clean it up. And if it goes badly, we can repair it. And it provided me such a supportive environment to take that risk. So his support mm-hmm. and the trust between us, it didn't increase the safety because it still could have gone bad and there could have been consequences. But I had the trust that I would be supported through it and it wouldn't be fatal. It right. wouldn't kill me. I would survive. And um, so, I, yeah, that's that's how I would speak to that question of. Yeah, yeah, how we can balance out the, the the stress and the lack of safety with higher trust. Yeah, I, that makes so much sense to me. And I feel like when I'm working with clients, I see that all the time, that if the consequences for failure are too high, then they won't move towards challenge because then yeah, yeah. the safer thing is to do what you know you're good at. But eventually they'll feel frustrated that they're not learning, they're not growing, no one's developing them. And so eventually you lose that person or you lose their effort and their intelligence and they're just kind of punching the clock, collecting the paycheck. They have that safety there, but in order to want to move towards challenge, you have to have space for failure because you are moving into challenge and that's part of the learning process. So yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Because like if my boss had had, if he had been bringing too much anxiety Mm-hmm. then he would have maybe shut me down and said, no, don't try this. And then I wouldn't have learned. And then I wouldn't have grown and developed right. as a, as a speaker in that skill. So yeah, that really contributed to me growing and learning was, and being able to take on that challenge. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. So as we are bringing today's conversation to a close, I feel like there's so many directions we could go. So there might <laughs> have to be a part two, but as we are closing this day, Um, how can our listeners engage with you and your work? Where can they find it? Yeah. um, So uh, my website, The Brain and the Spirit is about to come out. The book is already out. So it can be found at all different colors. And then um, my Instagram is at The Brain and the Spirit too. And so, yeah, really welcome people to connect with me. They can also find my email address on Seminary of the Southwest faculty page and welcome people to email with questions or comments. All nice. right. Perfect. Nice. Cool. Well, <clears throat> Jenna, thanks so much for being here with us today. That was some super cool stuff that you just brought to the table <laughs> for us. And to you, our dear listener, thanks for tuning in to the Kimberly Coach Show, where we endorse karaoke as a way to turn enemies into allies. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Kind of a lot of trust for karaoke. <laughs> anyway, cheers. So we just talked with Jenna St. David, who you've all now heard her brilliance. <laughs> and I got to tell you, the, uh, the bits about talking through when you're in a very high, potentially high stress conversation and the nonverbals that you're giving off and the thought behind. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Yeah, you know, that was so good. Where you know, we're, we're not being the enemy. 
mm-hmm. you know, because I've had those kinds of conversations where I think that, you know, the person was trying to push my buttons. And maybe I think in, in hindsight, when I think about conversations I've had, I think I was doing that too. And so <laughs> you I'm can like, get ah. into like a competitive, like who can push the other person. Like it's a quid pro quo. Right. For chat. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that idea that, you know, you're, you're an ally, you're on that person's side. If that is the thought behind when you're going into these stressful right. conversations, even when you're in a disciplinary conversation. Right. 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 I mean, gosh, God, that changes the whole tone of the conversation. Yeah. I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. You know, being on that person's side versus being the antagonist. Mm, that was so good. I'm going a, I'm to a do that next time. <laughs> yeah, I think I could pick a lot of things that Jenna talked about. And I, I really, I mean, we could have talked for hours. And when I am struggling with relational dynamics. Jenna is one of the people in our life. We know her personally. And um, she's a person that I always am going to for wisdom. Uh, But one thing that she said that really stuck out to me today is around people's reactivity and what happens to the brain's ability to learn when we are threatened or stressed to the point where we kind of drop into that lower brain. Mm, And I've seen this in play, especially in consulting conversations when I'm working with companies who are in conflict and you get to a point in the meeting where this person is very reactive or something has happened and it's clear that the person is reactive in a way that doesn't quite fit the situation. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times what, you know, the default is is to try to like really bog down in the details and, and explain and explain and explain. And the person feels more and more patronized, but they are not in a place to learn they're not going to change the way they're thinking in their higher brain about processes and about um, whatever the conversation is about. They're trying to survive. Right. You know, they're reactive. Yeah. Their neurosystem, their neurobiology is actually in a different mode. And mm. so if you take that time and you're not able to help them regulate their nervous system, then all of the teaching and explaining and lecturing that you're doing in that space, it is not likely creating change. They might be um, at a certain point frozen, which is one of the ways that we're reactive. You know, we, we talk about fight or flight, but there's also freeze. And so sometimes people just shut down and they're just, they're just tolerating the lecture that you're giving. They're tolerating your explanation. They've mm-hmm. given up trying to match you, but they're not out of that reactivity and their brain is not, um, absorbing whatever you're talking about. So you are really at that point, you're talking for you. You are, you want to hear whatever you're saying. You want them to have had to hear it, but you're not actually moving this person towards better understanding, better learning. The brain is not developing. The the brain is not helping them learn from this and move in, in a different way. And so I think if people really knew that, in especially workspaces and and power dynamics, when there is something where a person is highly reactive, they would first manage the reactivity. Mm, mm -hmm. Even if that means let's take a break, let's go outside and take a walk, let's take 10 minutes. Um, I often tell people in a meeting that's really highly charged, let's all put both feet on the ground, feel the floor through your feet. Take them, you, you got to move them out of the thing that feels so threatening mm. so that 
their neurobiology, can, their, their, their response can calm so that the conversation you're having is actually worth something. Yeah. yeah. And I think if you think back to your experience, we've all had a conversation where we felt highly threatened. Um, and when you think about, you, you, have you ever had that kind of conversation where you're relaying it to your spouse or your friend and you're, like the details of it are fairly blurry? Like, I, I don't even know what she was saying. I was so upset. It's because your brain is not taking in new information. It's not learning. Yeah. Um, and I just think if, if people could walk away from this with that piece, the way they handle stress and conflict might shift in a way that benefits not only that person, but also them, because you don't want to waste your time and energy trying to teach something that can't be learned in that moment. Yeah. Um, so I think that's really powerful. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So that's what we got time. That's the show for today, gang. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, you can always catch us here on YouTube. You can catch us wherever you're listening to us at. And you also catch us at KimberlyandCoach.com. We'll see you next time. Cheers. 